This week, Hertz files a second amended plan of reorganization. Molis sues its client, Feral Gas, for unpaid fees. Intelsat's Jackson Crossover Group calls debtor's plan dead end. And as always, updates from Puerto Rico. This week, legal analyst Kevin Ackart provides an overview of recent high-yield and distressed litigation. It's Friday, April 9th. The Hertz debtors on April 3rd filed a second amended plan of reorganization and accompanying disclosure statement reflecting a, quote, enhanced proposal from Centerbridge Partners, Warbur Pincus, and Dundon Capital Partners to fund the comp- company's Chapter 11 cases with a $1.6 billion rights offering, a $565 million direct purchase of Hertz reorganized equity by Dundon, Centerbridge, and Warburg, and a $385 million preferred stock issuance to Centerbridge and Warburg. The second amended plan is a pivot from the first amended plan filed March 20. 20- 29th, which allowed for the implementation of either the Centerbridge, Warburg, and Dundon proposal, or the proposal of Knighthead Capital Management and Sataris, which in turn was the basis for the debtor's initial March 2nd plan. The latest proposed transaction is supported by holders of over 85% of the company's unsecured notes, which are the vast majority of creditors in the largest class of claims voting on the plan. Reorg published a waterfall model this week, analyzing recoveries under the proposed plan, finding that the package available to bondholders would be worth 99.6%, assuming an enterprise value of $5.7 billion, an enterprise value of $6.985 billion predicated on an 11x multiple of 2022 projected EBITDA, which is in line with Avis's current trading levels, would yield 121% recovery for bondholders. Broadly, the plan proposes to pay first lien notes, second lien notes, and HHN notes guarantees in full in cash. Holders of unsecured funded debt claims would receive 48.2% of reorganized equity, subject to dilution and subscription rights for the rights offering. Unsecured funded debt claims are estimated to recover 75% based on a $4.2 billion equity valuation, plus the value of subscription rights. General unsecured claims will receive recovery from a GUC claims cash pool with an estimated recovery of 75%. According to the DS, as part of their agreement to sponsor the plan, the members of the ad hoc group of unsecured notes have elected to exercise their subscription rights. The members of the ad hoc group of unsecured notes have also agreed to purchase any unsubscribed shares not purchased by the other unsecured funded debt holders. In a development in the feral gas bankruptcy cases after the company emerged, Mullis & Company, which serves as a financial advisor, capital markets advisor, and investment banker to Feral Gas LP and parent Feral Gas Partners LP since 2019, sued the company Monday for more than $20 million in unpaid fees in connection with the parent company's recent Chapter 11 filing and Feral Gas LP's out-of-court restructuring, which closed March 30th. Mullis states in the complaint that it is entitled to a fee of $19.25 million for closing Feral Gas LP's $700 million preferred equity raise and a $1.475 million fee for Feral Gas's LP's uh, uh, high-yield bond offering. Mullis says that notwithstanding the outstanding results, it achieved for the company, Feral Gas's president, CEO, and chairman of the board, James E. Farrell, refuses to pay Mullis for, uh, for its full fees. Mullis says that thanks to its efforts, Feral Gas creditors received 100 cents on the dollar, thereby enabling Feral and other unit holders to retain substantial equity in Feral Gas Partners LP. Nevertheless, according to the complaint, on March 15th, Feral threatened to fire Mullis, which responded by defending its work. On March 29th, the complaint states, Mullis sent an invoice to the company for $20.725 million in fees plus $4.095 
million of out-of-pocket expenses. Farrell then called Mullis' lead banker on the transaction and demanded that Mullis accept just $10 million. According to Mullis, uh, Farrell said he was refusing to pay Mullis its full fee because he was not pleased with Mullis' performance. Moreover, Farrell purportedly insisted that if Mullis did not accept the fee reduction, he would close the transaction without paying Mullis' fee at all. In connection with the high-yield bond offering, the complaint says that Mullis elected to exercise its rights to act as co-manager of the bond offering once a lead banker was selected. Farrell Gas refused, notwithstanding Mullis' contractual right pursuant to its engagement letter, the complaint asserts. Mullis says that after the March 30 closing of the offering, is entitled to not less than 10% of the fees paid to all underwriters. The IntelSat ad hoc bank, uh, parent entity convertible noteholder group and the Jackson Crossover Group objected to the debtor's proposed ninth, nine-month extension of their exclusive periods to file and solicit votes on a Chapter 11 plan, joining the official committee of unsecured creditors. Each group maintains that the current plan should be replaced by a standalone plan for ultimate parent IntelSat SA and the IntelSat Jackson debtors. The Jackson Crossover Group insists the Jackson entities should prosecute their own plan rather than being held hostage by the out of court parent entity creditors, including the convertible group, which have disputed the Jackson entity's ownership of $4.9 billion in FCC C-band accelerated relocation payments and objected to the Jackson creditors' guarantee claims against the parent entities. The crossover group objected, calling the plans a dead end of the debtor's own making, end quote, and maintains that negotiations with the debtors have, quote, proven to be pointless because the debtors have credited or tolerated the Jackson parent entity's efforts to manufacture meritless claims. Earlier in the week, IntelSat provided cleansing materials related to discussions with non-consenting creditors, including term sheet proposals from both IntelSat and the Jackson crossover group. The Jackson Crossover Group described its proposed plan structure as allowing the Jackson entities to emerge from Chapter 11 independently of the parent entities, including Ultimate Parent IntelSat SA, if a global settlement is not achievable at a reasonable price. The Crossover Group reports, however, that parent entity creditors have threatened to challenge any plan that allows Jackson to emerge by itself in the Luxembourg courts. The declaration of J. Ryan Sims of Jones Day, Counsel for the Crossover Group, attaches various term sheets and documents related to the objection. The parent entity convertible group maintains that it is IntelSat SA that should have a standalone plan of its own design because the current plan is, quote, guaranteed to be rejected by the only proper voting classes for IntelSat SA. The objection characterizes the IntelSat SA's special committee's approval of the current plan settlement as, quote, unfathomable, given that it knows the plan will be rejected by all of that entity's stakeholders. The ad hoc group suggests the IntelSat SA special committee must go back to the drawing board. On the island of Puerto Rico, in his first State of the Commonwealth address on, Mon on Wednesday evening, Governor Pedro Pelosi provided a strong defense of the Luma Energy contract to take over administration of the Puerto Rico Electric Power Authority's transmission and distribution system, saying he's convinced that service will improve under private management and that prepper employees who work for Luma will benefit from better, play benefits, better pay benefits and working conditions than they currently receive. During his address, the governor also detailed pending priorities during his term, including major infrastructure projects and new government technology initiatives regarding the proposed Commonwealth Plan of Adjustment. Perlusi reiterated his view that its economic terms are positive and sustainable, but said he would continue to fight against proposed cuts to government pension benefits under the proposed proposal. The governor also reiterated his op opposition to proposals to decrease Commonwealth funding to the University of Puerto Rico. Top red stories this week include 
Stoneway Capital Limited files Chapter 11 in New York after financial creditors refuse to extend standstill. Judge Sanchi denies YPF's motion to disqualify White and Case and Max's liquidating trust adversary. The GEO Group suspends quarterly dividend to maximize repayment of debt, evaluates corporate tax structure as REIT. And now, here's Jim from Houston with the week ahead. Well, thank you, Mark. Hello, all. Quarter ends, new one begins. That means earnings is on the horizon. Not a heck of a lot going on this week. Here's a few of the highlights. For more, let me come in to you our weekly forward calendar, which is released right when you need it, early Monday morning. So on Tuesday, we'll skip ahead to then. April 13th, there's an omnibus hearing in 24-hour fitness, oral arguments in Hertz, and earnings from Bed, Bath, and Beyond. Wednesday, April 14th, omnibus hearing in Diamond Offshore, hearing in Intel Sat. Thursday, April 15th, status conference in Sea Drill, earnings from Rite Aid. And Friday, April 16th, omnibus hearing in Hertz. And that's it. There will be more, and we will be there to tell y'all all about it. Mark, back to you. Thanks, Jim. And this week, Kevin Eckhart is back for an overview of high yield and distressed litigation. Well, hello, folks. I'm back, but only for a fleeting moment or so, mainly to introduce the smartest man in the room, Kevin Eckhart, who has taken upon himself to demystify the intersection between stress debt and litigation and regulatory matters. Kevin, please tell us more. Yeah, that's, that's right, Jim. And in case our subscribers haven't noticed, uh, we've been ramping up our coverage of litigation, regulatory, and legislative matters, what we call LRL, uh, relating to America's coverage names, in addition to other non-bankruptcy matters of interest for the high-yield and distress world. Today, I thought I'd run through some of the most interesting matters that we're monitoring right now. First up, we have the growing trend of state governments with uh, slightly divergent political views from the administration uh, suing the Biden administration over executive actions on behalf of important local industries. Just this week, the state of Florida sued the administration and the CDC over the CDC's guidance on the reopening of the cruise industry. As you know, Carnival, RCL, and Norwegian have been issuing high-yield secured and unsecured debt and selling equity like crazy the last year to get to the other side of the cruise halt imposed by the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, which keeps getting extended by the CDC. Back in October 2020, the CDC issued a framework for the cruise lines to meet certain requirements to start cruising again out of U.S. ports, notably Florida, from which 60% of U.S.-based cruises sail. The framework requires the cruise lines to apply for a conditional operating certificate to start sailing again 60 days ahead of the scheduled cruise date. Among other things, the framework would limit cruises of more than seven days and require testing of all passengers and crew on the day the cruise sails. As of now, none of the cruise lines have received a certificate, so they're still iced out of U.S. ports, including in Florida. The cruise lines have said there's no way they can start sailing again under the guidelines as they are, um, last revised in early April, on April 2nd, until at least November 1st. On Thursday, the state of Florida sued the CDC in a federal court in Florida, seeking to eliminate the framework calling the CDC's guidelines arbitrary and capricious, among other nasty things. This came one day after Carnival said on an earnings call that the CDC's guidelines are not, quote, workable and practical. According to Florida's suit, the cruise industry has been singled out for a total freeze, unlike airlines or hotels or other businesses affected by the pandemic. 
The most interesting immediate question here is the standing of the state to sue over the guidelines, since obviously the state of Florida doesn't operate a cruise line. They'll argue that the state has lost tax revenue over the CDC's guidelines and that they've had to spend more money on unemployment benefits for uh, cruise workers and that kind of thing. It'll also be pretty interesting to see if the courts are sympathetic to this industry because it's wholly international with boats registered in the usual shady jurisdictions and a workforce not subject to U.S. labor laws. In a second item we're monitoring, a number of Western states uh, may have a better shot in their action to invalidate the Biden administration's Keystone XL permit revocation. As you know, shortly after taking office, the administration issued an executive order revoking the permit for the cross-border segment of the pipeline heading to Canada, citing climate change reduction as their justification. The permit was issued by the Trump administration and by its own terms is freely revocable by the president. But on March 18th, a group of 21 states led by Texas and Montana filed a lawsuit in federal court in Texas to invalidate the executive order, arguing that it is contrary to Congress' support for the pipeline when it was under fire from the Obama administration. The states say Biden's order is a regulation of interstate and international commerce, which can only be done through the passage of legislation by Congress. Again, the states claim standing to bring the action on behalf of the onshore energy industry because of lost tax revenue and other things, such as uh, the damage being done to interstate highways by trucks carrying the oil instead of sending it through the pipeline. They may get a more sympathetic ear than Florida on the cruise line suit uh, because of the domestic support that we always see for this domestic industry. Speaking of domestic, um, I gather home security is on people's minds these days. What is going on exactly with ADT and Vivint? Another interesting suit we're following is the Vivint ADT patent fight. And I know it's odd for a reorg to be covering patent fights, but again, this is the kind of thing that has a big effect on some America's names. Vivint and ADT are big players in the growing do-it-yourself smart home security system business. Uh, these companies are racing to develop systems for home monitoring, facial recognition at your doorbell, location tracking, and remote surveillance. Uh, we've been following ADT as a high-yield name for some time, but the company got a shot in the arm in September 2020 with a $450 million equity sale to Google combined with a contract with Google to develop smart home security technologies. The parties agreed to develop and sell new tech together for the next generation of these, symptom, these systems, uh, which includes access to Google's facial recognition database and other big data tools. Perhaps sensing a challenge, last month or in late February, Vivint sued ADT for infringing on six key smart home security process patents, patents that are issued for ideas or concepts rather than specific tech or chemical formulations, the typical stuff you think of with patents. Uh, these lawsuits have become a key competitive tool for companies trying to keep their competitors from implementing similar uh, competing tech and product plans. The lawsuit targets key elements of ADT's smart home securities offerings, including a quote, system and method for providing configurable security monitoring, and a, quote, system for and method for providing configurable security mon monitoring utilizing an integrated information system. This is patent mumbo jumbo for ADT stole our idea for home security systems that recognize movement and faces and send an alert to your phone. 
Vivint clearly thinks the suit is a big deal since they played it up in a press release in late February after it was filed. Uh, not only could a win for Vivint cripple ADT's product offerings, it could also potentially trigger a default under ADT's agreement with Google um, and, uh, and other grief for that new partnership. ADT issued an 8K on March 3rd, indicating that it believes the suit is without merit and it intends to vigorously defend itself. Uh, we're waiting for the inevitable motion to dismiss for ADT to present their side of the story. But it's this kind of bet the company litigation we're focusing on in our expanded litigation coverage. Pharmaceuticals are always a fairly fertile field for such fights. Is that a fair statement? Yeah, Jim, we've been following two big pharma-related litigation, litigation cases for some time. First, of course, the opioids mess uh, and the ongoing generics pricing conspiracy actions. In the former, of course, opioid manufacturers are accused of flooding the market with false and misleading marketing and turning a blind eye to abuse, leading to crushing costs for local governments to clean up the opioid crisis, as they call it. Uh, additional policing, additional uninsured hospital care, foster care for the children of addicts, special education for children born with, born with opioid dependence, that kind of thing. In the Mallinckrodt case, U.S. state and local governments have filed $2.2 trillion, with a TR, worth of claims uh, related to the opioid business. Three companies, Insys, Purdue, and Mallinckrodt, have filed for Chapter 11 to deal with over 3,000 opioid suits brought not just by the governments, but also by insurance companies, hospitals, and other uh, private parties as well as Indian tribes um, as governments uh, to recover for the damage done by the opioid epidemic. Teva, Endo, Lynette, and Johnson & Johnson remain fighting along with the big three drug distributors, Amerisource Bergen, Cardinal Health, and McKesson. There have been rumors of settlements of more than 25 billion with the distributors circling for some time. But as, but as it often is the case, these settlements generally don't get finalized until a trial is looming. And the COVID-19 pandemic has made it impossible for most state and federal courts to hold trials. Uh, they are reluctant to call in hundreds of potential jurors to the courthouse and sit them in a room together for three hours eating cold sandwiches. And they also don't want to bring the dozens of attorneys required uh, from around the country to sit in a courtroom for several weeks together. Uh, the trial everyone has pegged as the key catalyst for a final settlement. Uh, the state of New York and Nassau and Suffolk County's claims uh, currently pending in New York State Court in Eastern Long Island was to start last March, but that keeps getting rolled over. In early March, New York Justice Jerry Gargiulo, a real character I think you would appreciate who likes to do hearings standing up, uh, but also a stern taskmaster in these cases, uh, he pushed the trial out again to June 8th with a status conference in May to see if that's actually going to be possible based on vaccination statistics and all kinds of other public health matters that you never thought would interfere with a jury trial in New York State Court. Meanwhile, last month, a federal judge in West Virginia took under advisement one of the key issues in these cases, whether governments can recover from the defendants on a public nuisance theory. And that's where a, a tortfeasor or a wrongdoer can be forced to pay the costs of cleaning up a the mess, a dangerous condition that harms the public at large, leaves behind. Generally, uh, historically, this theory has been used 
to, re- to force companies to remediate environmental contamination uh, that hurts a whole town or a state. But the governments are now claiming the opioid crisis is similar to that kind of contamination and trying to recover those trillions of dollars from these companies to clean up after the opioid mess. Two states, uh, the Dakotas, have had state courts reject this theory under their state laws. And it is a state law, 50 states, each one with its own rules situation. Most federal courts to consider the issue have sided with the government and allowed these claims to go forward. A ruling in favor of the defendants by the federal court in West Virginia could disrupt that settlement calculus and make things a little more difficult for the governments. Finally, this week, uh, Endo was hit with a default judgment for public nuisance liability for the opioids crisis by a state court in Tennessee. According to the judge, the company committed some pretty nasty discovery violations, and the court punished Endo by denying them the opportunity to defend themselves on liability. So now all the plaintiffs have to do is show how much money they're entitled to, and the plaintiffs are asking for more than $2 billion. Uh, This is a pretty draconian punishment for discovery violations, and Endo has said it will appeal. But if a big judgment holds up, you may see Endo join those other three in bankruptcy court. Uh, Finally, on the the generics price-fixing situation, this is a case where pretty much every state attorney general in the United States and Puerto Rico and the District of Columbia have sued virtually every generics manufacturer for getting together and pumping up or maintaining the prices of generic drugs by not competing with each other. Uh, Teva is at the center of this case, and the the AG's complaint focuses on Teva as the sort of hub of the conspiracy. Um, The problem for this is that Teva has now been criminally indicted by the United States for its behavior in connection with the alleged conspiracy, And therefore, um, for Fifth Amendment reasons, the parties will not be able to depose Teva witnesses or get documents from Teva except in very limited circumstances, which kind of makes it difficult to prove a case focused on Teva. So right now, in that case, just this week, there was a hearing on trying to decide uh, which claims they can go forward with and how, if they were to carve Teva out of this whole situation, and whether it would be workable for them to go forward Um, with Teva's indictment and criminal trial looming. Well, thank you, Kevin. We will be sure to watch all those court doings. More fun than L.A. Law Marathon. Thank you. And Mark, back to you. Thanks, Kevin. And thank you again for listening to this Reorg Weekly Review. Find all our podcasts on the Reorg.com media page, as well as Spotify, iTunes, and SoundCloud. Hope your families are healthy and safe. We'll see you next Friday.